Even if you are not professional, you will all, every day you will think about chess. Uh, so it's a very, uh, very nice game, I think, and it's very good for mental yeah. health. Very good for mental health. Are you obsessed with chess, but also kind of fun at parties? Do you keep your opening prep on your bedside table right next to your feelings journal? Welcome to the Chess Feels podcast, the only chess podcast dedicated to the social and psychological aspects of this game we know and love. And hate. Tune in every week to join me, professional chess teacher and amateur feelings haver, JJ Lang. And me, professional therapist and amateur checkmate finder, Julia Rios. As we dive into our shared love for the game and attempt to answer the most burning question for every chess obsessive. Why are we like this? Welcome to a very special chess field. I feel like I say that every time. That's because they're all special. The one with John, though? (laughs) That was the most special of all. John, we love you. Hard disagree. So we are here approximately two hours after I finished playing a tournament, and I am wrecked. And I am sharing that with all of you loyal listeners because we love you. And, you know, we can call this the raw feels. (laughs) Wait, I love that. I guess we can just rename whenever I play a tournament and we talk about it, like what intrusive thoughts could JJ not get out of his head? And today's intrusive thoughts, this is very special and very relevant because it's something that a lot of people were talking about recently, well, always, but recently online in response to when we were asking, you know, what are things we should talk about? The obsession with ratings and that nagging pernicious feeling that the rating is all that matters, or even if it's not all that matters, is going to just affect your performance and just can't shake it even if you know you should. And I was in it today with you, with all of you, dear listeners. And I feel like there's a couple things packaged into there, which is one, the rating feels like a lot of pressure. Two, because of that, it might affect my actual performance and therefore affect my rating. And then three, it's also really impacting my mood and how I feel and my relationship with not only chess, but also how I feel even when I get back in my car and drive home after the chess is over. So there's like a couple of different layers there, I think. Exactly. Yeah. And let's be sure to touch on all of those in the way they connect. So yeah, maybe briefly, I can tell you about what this tournament was today. And I also want to talk about a little bit of the anxiety and build up for it too. So today I played a tournament. It was an impromptu tournament that one of the Nebraska organizers tried to put together of folks in Nebraska over 2000. It's like that uh, Arrested Development meme with the Never Nude saying there's dozens of us, <laughs> only it's like there's, there's six of us. Three agreed to play like a round robin and I was going to play two games and then drive back to Lincoln. It was at someone's house in Omaha. It was very nice of him to host us. And then we get a last minute email, like literally I'm pulling into the target around the corner from this person's house to grab a bottle of water. And apparently our fourth was available. And so surprise, change of plans. We're going to play a third game. What ended up happening was the first game went fantastically. It was a game that Julia's posted and made it very clear it was my game. And a lot of like men are flirting with her because they think (laughs) it's her game. And it's pretty enjoyable. I had worked a lot on prep. I had gone through stuff with Gopal. Julia helped me and helped find opponents to practice the lines with on Twitter. (laughs) People for me to practice on Lee Chess with. And let me be very clear that I said, does anyone want to practice the next Nydorf tonight. Not does anyone want to practice a Nydorf with exclusively me. I feel like trying to like wiggle <laughs> onto that locution and like other things in one's personal life could get one into a lot of trouble. <laughs> All I'm saying is that I didn't say anything that was explicitly incorrect. No, no. So that game was fantastic today and everything went as well as it could have. And then I played my friend Nick, who I've played a few times, and that was a really well played game up and down, hard fought draw. It was great. And then I thought we had like two hours until the next game. I was ready to like kind of reset, knowing that the next person I played was much higher rated and somebody I'd beaten before and thinking with one and a half out of two, if I can beat this guy, that could really be like a 20 point day, a 30 point day, maybe. And already I'm right back to where I was. And holy shit, that would turn 90 points to master into 60 points to master. And I was like there and maybe I would have regrounded myself and gotten something to eat and taken care of it. But then suddenly I find out unbeknownst to me, they just want to start the next round two hours, 20 minutes ahead of schedule. Oh, and also the colors are reversed of what you thought they were. Um, So let's go for it. 
such a nightmare, JJ. And it's really just that takes a lot of energy. It was just mostly interesting to see how when I'm not grounded, ready in the right headspace, the pattern of my losses is just so clear. That's something we had talked about before. And I feel a lot more equipped to like handle those sorts of things when I'm not fucking exhausted. So I'm less interested in that. I'm more interested in that piece of, I really wanted to play the game. And I think even part of the reason I wasn't like, hey, I need an hour is because what I really wanted was the points. Yeah. Oh, that's so interesting. Like not only did those thoughts about the rating, you know, potentially impact what you actually played, but even also your desire to say, yes, let's do it. Even though the conditions are actually pretty crappy. I mean, you had already played eight full hours of chess. You'd driven an hour to Omaha. I could definitely imagine being in your shoes and being like, oh, I'm exhausted. (laughs) My doggy daycare is over in a couple (laughs) hours. Like, I actually just have to go. Sorry, we'll try again next time. But it feels like it was that number chasing that probably pushed you over the edge to want to stay. Which is super related to that conversation we were having earlier a few weeks ago about addiction and blitz. And there, because I think it would be misleading to say blitz chess is addictive. But if the game lasts longer than X minutes, it's no longer addictive. It's all on a spectrum, obviously. But but I think here, the, the thing that I remember you saying about Blitz is that instant gratification of like, within minutes yeah. of the game starting, it has not only ended, but you've gotten the dopamine hit of the rating and then maybe those additional hits of your performance and your brilliant moves. Yeah. So here there is something where starting to get to the end of the tournament and seeing a really good result numerically on the horizon, and I want to keep chasing that. And I think that's something very similar happening. We're like, I know roughly what will happen if I beat this much higher rated player. And I really want that in a way that isn't usually at the forefront of a classical game where your rating is only affected by the results of the full tournament. So it ended up just being a much more gratification-seeking environment. And that was something I was not prepared for. But it's also something that I don't think is particularly uncommon. And in your case, JJ, also a high-rated player that you've beaten before, that you feel like you have a good shot against, I can totally understand the reward-seeking that might happen, knowing that those numbers are like at your (laughs) fingertips. Exactly. And I think people are saying this, of feeling like they always peak early and then crash in tournaments. And I think this came up when we were on Chess Pit. And like, am I most dismissive? I want to be like, well, if you win your early games, you're paired against people who are also winning. But I think there is something deeper of like, you you start thinking about not just like how nice it would be to play a good tournament, but I th- you start thinking about something that is not the chess. Yeah. Which is funny because we recognize that so easily when we think about it in the other direction, when we're talking about tilt. So when we start mm. losing points, it's really easy for us to identify how that changes our headspace. So it's really cool, JJ, to hear you talk about the flip side of that, which is actually, even if I'm doing really well and my points are actually going up, there's a certain pressure with that too. That could also affect the way I play. Maybe this is more even about almost that focus on rating at all. And once there starts to be this emphasis on the rating, it is somehow impacting the headspace that you're in and the way that you're able to play the game. I totally buy that. Yeah. I mean, if you're attending to that, that means you're attending less to the game you're playing. And so even if it's not as fully formed as like, I'm going to make different decisions because I'm concerned about my rating, just the fact that you're attending to something that has nothing to do with the decisions you should be making is an issue. Yes, totally agree. I also think that tilt and like the positive rating obsession are probably very related. One of my adult students recently was like, I broke my personal record, I got over 1200 on chess.com blitz for the first time. And I hear this pause and then I just smile and go, and then he's like, and "And then I've tilted 200 points. Of course, that high probably explains why he kept going when he was tilting. But I also think Mm. the tilt probably began because he really didn't want to lose his 1200 rating. And then he was only two games away from his 1200 rating and then only four games away from his 1200 rating. And then he was a thousand. And why is it that that pressure, as soon as we have the points that we don't want to lose or we see the points that we want to get, has such a noticeable impact on our performance? Yeah. Well, I guess first I'll ask you, what do you think it is about rating? Yeah. I mean, I think it's kind of the things that we've already mentioned. I think as soon as you're thinking about something besides the chess, it's really just interfering with your attention, your focus, your Mm -hmm. cognitive control, your decision-making, your planning, your judgment. There's all these cognitive processes that are essentially in competition. So when you're so focused on the chess and you're looking at the position, I feel like 
Anything that can subtract from that headspace is not going to help your game. But I also kind of want to throw in the possibility that there also might be this effect where our level of arousal can impact our performance. And there might mm. be something inherently emotional or arousing about the rating mm. that people feel really strongly about. So it's kind of like the Yerkes-Dodson effect. We've talked about that more colloquially, but essentially researchers think that there's this optimal inverted U dose curve where a certain amount of arousal or adrenaline can help our performance. But once we exceed that, our performance actually goes down. So maybe this is tipping people over the scale. Like it's totally. creating such a heightened state that their performance starts to suffer. And that makes total sense. And I suppose maybe the question that tickles me as a philosopher, not bound by uh, data. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. What is it about rating that tickles that arousal? Because just the sense of, well, when things are going well, that's exciting and that can affect our performance. That to a certain degree is true of anything. But I think sure. there's something pernicious about rating that makes it especially prone to doing this. And I kind of want to tease out mm -hmm. what that might be. And yes. I'll start by saying something controversial. But brave. But brave. I think that it has to do with the objectivity. And I've said this before, and you got kind of mad at me and we're like, but there's so many objective stats and measurements and everything that don't have this effect. I've literally never been mad at you, JJ. Okay. <laughs> Sorry, was that like not the most salient part of your sentence? <laughs> But yes, no, I think you're right. There is something about the fact that it's objective, but there's a lot of things about the outcome in chess which are objective. In fact, even just winning or losing a game of chess is an mm -hmm. objective measurement of performance mm -hmm. and success. So we can imagine a similar scenario where you play, let's say, in a 10-game tournament, but it's all unrated. I'm not convinced that it's just the objectivity of the performance indicator that would mm -hmm. have such an emotional impact. But Prove me wrong. Well, what do you think it is that would give it that impact? Right. What is it about the rating? The two big ones that I think that we can at least agree on to start with is one, it's publicly available. People can mm. see your rating. And What's your rating? <laughs> oh, JJ and I love this question. <laughs> What's your rating? Can I see it? <laughs> no. <laughs> I mean, you can, but it's taken us a long time to get there. But yeah, I think that has something to do with it and how we imagine that other people are perceiving us. Mm -hmm. um, the other big one, I think, is also that it's a ranked rating system. That's literally how ELO works. You know where you are in comparison to all of your friends that play chess, where you are in the system. So everyone knows what that number is. And then you also get this point of self-comparison. So I think that really changes the stakes. I think there really is a strong social aspect there that profoundly impacts how we feel about what our rating is beyond just the number of games we win or lose. So thank you for saying that. So this is what's been fucking me up because I completely agree with that about the comparative element. But I think that just like the objectivity alone isn't enough because there's all sorts of objective metrics you can get from a chess game that don't spike that emotional reaction. I think the comparative aspect isn't enough either. I mean, just like the simple fact that most people care about their rating, which sure you can map onto a percentile, but no one really talks about what percentile they are. Is that because we all kind of inherently know what the percentiles are? I believe that's what you think, but I don't think that's what I think. Yeah. What do you think? I think that there's something really insidious about the way that the conversion from something that's a comparison that tells you it's a comparison, like a percentile, mm. into something that's still a comparison, exactly like Julia said, but just is a number. Uh, there's a way that it obscures the comparison. So I think it's the the, the objectivity mm. is doing two sorts of work. There's the genuine objective fact of your rating is X based on a performance of X games with X results. And instead of just telling you that literally this is how you compare to people as a function of how you've played against these people at these times, it tells you what you are, that you are a 2400. It doesn't tell yeah. you that your performance puts you at the 95th percentile. It tells you that you are a thing. And so it purports this additional layer of objectivity that is hiding the comparative element. Like, I want to say that I am this thing. Yeah. And that and that it says something about me. And that's not really what an ELO is. But I think if you listen to people talk about it, that's what I was trying to get at with the objectivity is that it's like a false objectivity. Yeah. Okay. I think that you've convinced me. I think there really definitely could be. <laughs> He's so 
happy. I thought about this all morning on my drive to the tournament. <laughs> yeah, I do think there is something to that. I hear what you're saying. It lets us almost forget that it is a comparison and it feels even actually more objective than it is Yes, in that sense. So we put a lot of stake in it. I'll buy that. And I think that has a lot in common with something like grades, where like a lot of jobs yeah. will have some sort of performance review, but a lot of performance reviews don't really hide their subjectivity. And I think a lot of people struggle to interpret meaning from that because especially if they're overachievers, like hosts of other podcasts, but not this one. Not us. But for people who are overachievers, I think something they struggle with is they'll be told that they're doing well or whatnot. But if they're really used to putting a lot of value or worth and like getting that A, then just yeah. like an, a, a positive performance review or just positive feedback or general encouragement doesn't really scratch that externalized itch in the same way. And mm -hmm. I think that a lot of objective outputs and metrics don't hide the subjective components the same way that grades do and that rating does. And I think rating can be a really easy target for obsession, not, not just for people who got good grades and cared about their grades, but people who like, if you can identify with really wanting to latch onto that or having that become a part of your identity, or at the very least be a motivator more than just learning a bunch of shit you don't care about is, then you can see how rating can do that too. Oh, yeah. I mean, of course it feels good. And I think this does go back to the previous episode on addiction. We know the ways that this scratches that itch, hits that reward center, releases that type of dopamine, seeing that number go up. Again, I do think some people are kind of more prone to that. And it is interesting. I feel like maybe this is the minority, but you will talk to some people. Like I know Robin on Chess Pit said, I don't really care that much when I lose. It doesn't knock me over. And then John was like, I've had games where I literally had to lie on the floor. <laughs> so you can see that people do react differently. There is a spectrum there. Yeah. And I guess I just wanted to use a part reacting from the loss versus reacting to the rating loss. Yeah. It's such a good point. I wonder what most people would say, but I want to hear what, what would you say, JJ? Like, do you feel like you react differently to rated or unrated games or how do you feel about it? Well, I don't know about rated for unrated games, but I do know that I, I can definitely identify different feelings I have when I'm upset about playing poorly versus playing well and blowing it versus playing okay, but choking versus mm -hmm. the number went down and it has nothing to do with how I played. Like those are definitely yeah. different emotional reactions and I can definitely have multiple of them. But I think that something that we want to be careful about would be conflating the emotional reactions that have to do with either like, to me, it's just very different to play a great game and blow it on time or blow it on one move and be upset about that. Well, that's what I was going to say, JJ, because, okay, you correct me if I'm wrong, mm -hmm. but my mm -hmm. guess would be that if you had two options, one mm -hmm. was playing an incredible game against an incredible opponent who played flawlessly, had no blunders. You also played spectacularly, but had one small misstep or mm -hmm. a really tough tactic and lost the game, but mm -hmm. played brilliantly. And we're really proud. Mm -hmm. Your rating goes down <laughs> versus you have another game where you actually play pretty lousy. Yeah. Couldn't be me. <laughs> but your opponent chokes. You get a tactic at the very end. You pull out a win. Or let's say your opponent's crushing you, but they flag. Yeah. And you get rating points. If someone told me to place a bet, I would actually predict that you would pick the spectacular game mm -hmm. and lose a little bit of your rating yes. over the alternative. But I could be wrong. This is an excellent thought experiment. What I can say confidently yeah. is I want to want to pick the spectacular game and yeah. that, that has the pain thing. I don't know. Like I've played some great games. I'll play some more great games. I don't value my rating more than my chess. If you were like for the rest of your life, you can only win games by swindles or you will lose every brilliant game you play. I'd probably rather lose all the brilliant games I play because I'll still have a lot of games that aren't brilliant and I still get to play brilliant games. Yeah, it's a more pure thought experiment. I like that. You philosopher. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I can do that. But if you're like tomorrow, there's another game and you can either play awesome and then crash at the end or play shitty and get those 10 points you almost got today. I'm like, gimme, I can play a brilliant game next weekend. Yeah. You could get 10 points next weekend too, though. Oh, that's true. 
I love the idea of being so purely devoted to my passion for chess that as much as I would love to see the numbers go up, I am purely motivated by playing good chess. Yeah. There's a certain artistry about that, right? Yes. Yes. Don't you feel like all the greats? That's kind of what they say. Like, I'm in love with the game and I'm in love with the process and the wins will come, but I'm in love with the chess, not with the title. Yeah. And that definitely is an admirable goal and approach. I think that like whenever I see somebody like what opening will maximize my win rate at X level, I'm like, terrible question. Like, I understand why you're asking it, but like, I I want you to understand why that can actually really stunt not only your growth in chess, but it can also stunt your appreciation for chess. I agree. And I think that we see that phenomenon, sort of that dedication to the process or to the sport or the game or the art itself. All the people that I admire most totally adhere to this. I'm going to make an analogy (laughs) that hopefully works, but My favorite writer is Ann Carson. I think she's one of the coolest people alive. And in her interviews, she's so clear. I don't care how successful my books are. I want to write what excites me and makes me light up. And I want to have this original, innovative voice. So much so that I don't even read other authors that I love when I'm writing. Because I don't want to be influenced and have their voice kind of creep into my voice. I want to do something that's totally original and is so aligned with what I'm passionate about. I don't even care if I sell books. And when she says it, I like totally believe her. She's like, I think what I'm doing is really special and hopefully people like it, but I don't care. So you're saying the next time I don't do any opening prep or study any master games before a tournament (laughs) because I'm, I'm not trying to be influenced and I'm trying to do something original and special and not because I just wanted to play Blitz instead. If you were the Ann Carson of chess, then yes. If you were that brilliant mind, but you would never believe how many people have called me the Ann Carson of chess. <laughs> no, sorry, sorry. They called me the Ben Carson of chess, but they were referring to his <laughs> politics and not the surgeon part. <laughs> okay, we're going to do a poll on that on Twitter. Is JJ the Ann Carson of chess or the Ben Carson of chess? There's a gifted hands joke somewhere. But I really admire what you're saying about Ann Carson. But I just want to say there's there's just also something to be said. And I can speak personally here of like, I've gone through a lot of anxiety and growth having to do with my relationship to chess, maybe like in my fourth or so year of my PhD program, as I was starting to question whether or not I really wanted to pursue academic jobs or the sorts of work that was feeling very draining and anxiety provoking and just not making me happy. I fell in love with chess again and was living in New York and playing all the time and was trying to figure out how to integrate chess into my life. And the major way that I framed that question to myself then is how can I make a living off of chess as somebody who's not even a titled player, let alone a grandmaster? And that's something that's related to the rating thing too, where it's like the fact that I, again, using all capital letters, am not a 2200. It was like an identity problem to me. That's such a great point, JJ. And I think the vast majority of people who play chess and enjoy chess and consider themselves an adult improver and play on a daily basis their livelihood is not impacted by their rating whatsoever. And they might actually still feel this same level of sort of emotional attachment or reactivity to their rating. So I'm sure that kind of heightens this effect. I think what I was going to add to that wonderful point is, if anything, I think it just made me conscious of the effect it was having. Because it would be a lot easier, I think, to shake if it really was just some arbitrary number. But I remember telling myself, maybe I'll start teaching when I get over 2000. Or like, then I remember more recently telling myself, yeah. maybe I, I don't think I'll raise my rates till I get to this number. And like Amelia mm. kind of calling me out on that bullshit and being like, you have more experience mm. than you did years ago. You're a much better teacher because of that than you were a couple of years ago. You're more in demand than you were. Like, those are all things that like affect you as a teacher. And you're the host of a wildly successful podcast. Which by the way... If you use code CHESSFEELS, you will get $5 off this lesson on the condition that I remember to enter this code into my website. If not, well, you're already there. You should book a lesson. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> if if JJ forgets, just message me and I'll Venmo you $5. <laughs> <laughs> this is not how you keep people out of your DMs, Julia. <laughs> well, my <laughs> my DMs on Twitter are set up so that people cannot DM me. So Ah, okay, okay. You have to DM me at CHESSFEELS. Okay, excellent. That wait, that's me. <laughs> I like literally made this joke. It's not even a joke. 
I literally am like, please DM me at Chesfields all the time. <laughs> I get messages saying I have a question for Julia. And I'm like, yeah, shoot. <laughs> this is not her account. It's a good way to filter out the riffraff. Yes. But thinking about this identity thing, I think it's just it makes me conscious of it and also conscious of the fact that like that rating aspect or tying any sort of sense of self or identity to that rating is bullshit. And I think that's I I am just trying to like, I think, highlight how like it sounds so stupid when you hear somebody be like, I can't raise my rate until I get 100 rating points. I don't think it sounds stupid at all. Oh, I I think it sounds stupid. No, I, I, I'm not kidding, JJ. I don't All think right. that sounds stupid. I think that is such a normal, natural, common human tendency. That's what I said. <laughs> yeah, it's a quality joke. But Thank you. anyone who tries to act like they don't yeah. have or struggle with any of that is lying to you and themselves. I mean, we all feel that to some extent. And I think you've kind of touched on it's really more how do we respond to it? Do exactly. we latch on to it and buy into it and live and die by our rating? Or do we take a step back and almost explicitly say, this is an idea that I (laughs) reject and I'm going to make an intentional effort to avoid letting this impact my relationship with chess. So let's talk about that because that sounds good. And I've tried to do that. So let's talk both in general and specifically you're sitting down to play over the board or online or, or what have you. So both in general, how what is making that intention? What can ma- making that intentional effort look like? And how can right. we like develop practices around that when we're actually playing? Yeah. Julia's like, I'm not giving that away for free. <laughs> no, I would gladly. And I and I certainly don't want to pretend like I have some magic bullet solution that will work for everybody. Bullet? Bullet's the solution? <laughs> you heard it here. Want a healthier relationship to chess? Play bullet. <laughs> Five bullet. to six hours of bullet every day while drinking bullet. Five to six glasses of bullet. Bullet, I... bullet is our thing, JJ. We really should make people pay for that. I think <sighs> we invented that. I've been paying for that for years. <laughs> <laughs> it does have a cost, people. It does have a cost. So we can talk about both of those things. One, perhaps this emotional or even sort of subconscious attachment to the rating and the emphasis on that that is impacting our relationship with chess as a whole. But then also, like you mentioned, JJ, having some of those intrusive thoughts that are literally impacting you during the game and could affect your performance and ironically, sadly, your rating itself. So those are kind of two different things that we can unpack. And I think what the first one is is something that you and I have talked about a lot, which is in general, we see this theme about how we want to really shift our focus onto process instead of outcome. So when we're thinking about the rating in this way and we've really attached our sense of achievement, even our happiness or our satisfaction with our test performance as a whole on rating. Essentially, we're saying, I care about the outcome over the process. Mm -hmm. And over and over again, we just see that when we dedicate ourselves to the process instead of the outcome, not only do we feel better because we can always have control over how we show up in terms of the process, like what are our behaviors? How are we studying? How are we playing? We can't always do that with the outcome. We can play our hearts out in a game of chess and still lose. That's a fact all the time. Mm -hmm. So when we anchor ourselves to outcome, we are setting ourselves up to be totally miserable. Mm -hmm. But the really cool thing is that when we're dedicated to the process, not only do we feel better, but actually the outcomes tend to be better. So you kind of get a win-win there. Yeah. And so I'm kind of just brainstorming some things that that can look like. So I know one thing that I talk to my students about when like when people will be like, you know, this isn't what they say. But what I hear is I've been paying you for lessons for two months and my rating hasn't gone up is how I hear it. And then do you hear them say, like, why should I keep paying you? (laughs) Well, yeah. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> and then I'm like, are you breaking up with me? And they're like, what? <laughs> and then I chime in. Why am I in the lesson? I just kind of roll in from behind the corner and I'm like, are you mad at me? <laughs> and they're like, I don't know who you are. <laughs> but one thing I will say there is, you know, well, okay, I'd like you to go through some of your games and try and identify things that you've done, whether it's an idea you've had, a judgment you've made, a process of the decision you made or something, and just like make a study with like a couple instances of things that you remember doing or see yourself doing when you look back at them that you don't think you would have been able to do a month ago or that weren't how you thought about things a month ago. But I think being able to try and name like, okay, it, it might not be showing up in the rating yet. So let me for myself go back through the chest mm-hmm. and see like where I see this process coming in. And I think that is so amazing that you do that for your students and you've found this way to almost kind of creatively operationalize improvement and progress outside of rating, which is so necessary. 
And I would want to push you even further, JJ, to say, oh, shit, it is still kind of an outcome. Yes, yes, completely. <laughs> what can we do to even shift it more onto a process? What could that look like in the context of chess? I have I have one for that, too. Oh, I'm so excited. I would like everyone to go to www.leechess.org slash study and make a study and title yes. that study Grandmaster Games That Make Me Happy. And when you see some, you know, maybe it's a puzzle that cites what game it's from that somebody posts on Twitter. Maybe it's a recent game. Maybe it's like something that a friend shows you, but, and maybe even just seek it out. Like there's a lot of free resources, not just like from books, but like chessgames.com like is a really nice resource because they have so many game collections that users have made and you can just click through them. And if something really strikes you, just put it in a folder. And when you're really not feeling great about chess or like the outcomes, what you can really do is put quote unquote studying on hold and really play through those games and like just get that passion rekindled and just approach your chess with this drive, not for the sense of like trying to get better outcomes. I think that I realized how important this was when I was playing one of my first tournaments after the pandemic. And I was really in my head about like what I was like as a player because I had mostly played blitz for 18 months and was in the process of changing openings and in the process of like lots of things were changing basically for chess. And also I had moved to Nebraska. But I was very much in my head about like how I quote unquote should play and like worried about results. And I had a pretty bad loss. But then as it happened, the uh, World Cup for chess was going on. And there's a grandmaster who lives in Chicago, who's this really awesome Ukrainian guy. And he was playing a second round match against the famous Alexei Sharov. I think they had their two games and then they had their two rapid games and then they had their two fast rapid games and then they had their two blitz games. I think that might have been the only match in the World Cup that went that long where there wasn't a single draw. I think Gopal described it as like two punch drunk fighters, but like (laughs) just seeing the way they were playing, it was just inspirational is the only word for it. So I show up for the last round next day after watching like their Armageddon games or whatever. And I play a blank opening that I've never played before. Absolutely no theory, just really going by feel, trying to like create a chaotic mess and have the most fun I've had playing in a long time. And it's absolutely not really even just because I was trying to emulate that as much as it was just seeing that passion of those games ignited something in me that obsessing over losing X amount of points or gaining those points back was just not going to inspire in that way. And I think having those moments of inspiration is great, but you can absolutely seek those out. You know, like I'm serious, make those studies, make them public, share them, tweet them at us. Yeah. I like, I love it when people just like share the chess shit that makes them happy. Put some of your own games in there, put your friends' games in there. They don't have to be grandmaster games. Is that your way of trying to bait me to share more of your all star games, JJ? You're getting baited more than enough to share more of my games. <laughs> okay. Do it less. Noted. That's just one sort of thing to think about. But I mean, it's definitely something that can encourage more brainstorming. And as much as we care about the outcome, challenge whether the outcome is the rating. And this is something I think that's so interesting about chess, as opposed to like something like school that we were required to go to, is presumably everyone that's passionate about chess is here because at some point they really, really wanted to be and they were like truly in love with chess, right? Like no one is getting into chess as an adult, as an adult improver, because they are just so prodigious. (laughs) Right. Like no one's here because the rating was so fucking good. And so at a certain point, there's something almost against their will or maybe even without their noticing that has started to take a little bit more control than probably they want or probably they recognize. And just thinking about what was it that brought you here in the first place or what is it that keeps you here on the best days other than just winning? And how do you cultivate that? And how do you bring more of that into your chess practice? Yeah, I think you're really onto something that a lot of people are missing. It's such a good idea that, I mean, I've never heard anyone else recommend that, you know? And I guess I'm even kind of surprised to ask you this question. Your answers are so good. But I kind of thought the first thing that you would say is what I've heard before, which is when you dedicate yourself to the process, you need to make a study plan. It's just about showing up. You're going to play this number of training games each day or week. You're going to analyze them. You're going to study end games for X number of hours. So that is process, right? How you show up, how you study, what hours you put in. And I think that that advice is super pervasive. A lot of people are already doing that, which is great. I mean, I I really want to kind of acknowledge that that 
is sound advice that will help people get better. Mm -hmm. But I love your approach. It is a little bit different. It is saying we don't even need to be so solely and singularly focused on trying to improve and boost our rating. We can return to the love of the game. Yeah. And and that's so helpful too, because like routinely students will ask me, you know, for study plans. And I definitely want to do more. And I've been thinking a lot more about formalizing study plans. But I think yeah. a lot of my allergy to doing that is like, I just don't think that forcing yourself to play X number of games, no matter what, is going to do anything for your chess. That is controversial. I love it. And I mean, it's certainly true that going weeks without playing isn't going to do anything for your chess. But if you're routinely going weeks without ever playing or studying or doing anything, but you also believe that you genuinely love chess and want to get better, like that's super interesting. And I'd like to talk about that. But for the people who who are going to play some or look at some chess every day, yeah, definitely I understand. I very much understand the question of guidance in terms of how much should I be playing versus studying? What should I be studying? There's a lot of really good concrete questions there. But I think that pervasiveness that you describe is the way that some of that shifts from like, what even is useful for me? to the question of how do I optimize my time? But for those who don't have a lot of time, like most of us, most adult improvers, that is a great question. But just the idea of, well, how you optimize your time might not be how you optimize your love of the process. That is such a fucking slam dunk point. Sports. (laughs) It's really hard to be dedicated to a process in that way, which is super effective and will actually keep you coming back for more in a way in which you're truly engaged. That's what I hear you saying, JJ, is... Mm -hmm. Showing up and playing it because it's something to check off the list is actually probably not going to further your game the way that you want it to. But if you can do this thing that will help keep you engaged and motivated and in love with the process, you'll actually show up to the process in this deeper, more expansive way. That's radical. That is radical. And I mean, I think I do genuinely believe that. And I can speak from my own experience here, where when I think about what I loved about chess in the past, it's definitely changed and grown over time. I think I probably would have gotten better faster if I forced myself to study lots of things that weren't really speaking to me a lot earlier. But as I slowly got to improve, I like really started to appreciate things that I previously didn't. Like I started to understand that what I previously dismissed as like a teenager as positional play was a lot more concrete and calculation based in ways yeah. that I really liked than I thought positional play could be. Or I started to realize that theory was a lot less memorization and more of the articulation of plans. Or that endgames is a lot more about really getting a feel for coordination and activity. And so suddenly realizing that this spark of what I loved about aggressive tactical chess was actually there and all these other things. And I just really had to be exposed enough to it to start to see that, to see it in that way was really great. And I probably could have gotten a lot better at chess if I was forced to study end games before I got that. But I also might've just wanted to quit chess a lot before I did because yes. I was forced to study end games. Yes. What will actually keep you coming back? I, yeah. I've never heard it articulated that way, but immediately, yes, I love it. I, I really think there is something to that. And I think a lot of people experience the opposite of that, where they really do kind of burn out, mm-hmm. especially adult improvers who are there's going to be a ceiling to how much your rating goes up at the end of the day. I'm never going to be a titled player. <laughs> eventually, I have to keep falling in love with the process. Yeah. Of, of eventually, it has to be about how much I love the game and how much there is to love beyond the feeling when my rating goes up. That's just a fact of the matter. Yeah, absolutely. And so being able to regain that and, and keep doing that is great. So now let's talk about those people such as me who then they, they, they get all of that, they do all of that, and then we get down there and we know that like this could get us you know closer to our goal. Or maybe we should even have a meta conversation about ratings goals as a concept, but putting that on sure. hold. But this idea, JJ, of having those intrusive thoughts when you're yes. actually at the board yes. or you're preparing for a tournament. And a lot of people commented on our Twitter thread about this. How do I handle nerves before a big game, anxiety before a tournament? So this might be related to rating. It is at least going to be related to outcome. It's like, Mm -hmm, we're mm -hmm. nervous because we care. We're nervous because we want to do well and we want to win the game, which I think is great. So the first thing I'll say is the most important thing is just to notice when those processes are happening. And this kind of goes back to what we had talked about in episode three, talking about some therapy techniques that you can use for emotional regulation over the board at chess. The first step is always going to require you to be in tune enough with your own internal states that you notice that level of arousal or emotionality or anxiety go up so that then we can respond to it. 
And I think in this specific case, what you're talking about is what if when those reactions are anchored to these kind of intrusive Mm -hmm. or sticky thoughts about the weight of that potential change in my rating, whether I'm nervous it'll go down or really hoping it'll go up, what can we do? So the way I would kind of respond to that is say first, like notice that you're having those that can help you sort of slow down and at least respond to them in a really helpful way as opposed to be kind of stuck in the swirl of that heightened state, which will affect your play. And once you do that and you notice those thoughts, there's certainly a lot of ways that we can respond to cognitive distortions or maladaptive thinking or intrusive sticky thoughts. Mm-hmm. In this context of chess, I think one of the best ones we can do is something called diffusion. Okay. Diffusion comes from acceptance commitment therapy. And it's this idea that when we have these intrusive, unwanted, or unhelpful thoughts, it's really easy to almost get stuck in this cycle of wrestling with that thought. So you'll think, well, this thought's not helpful. Now I'm beating myself up for like, why am I thinking about reading right now? I need to focus on chess. And when we're wrestling with the thought, it still is impacting all of our psychological processes. So the analogy that I love to use with my clients is we can think of those unhelpful thoughts like this big beach ball. So I want you to imagine that you're in the ocean and this beach ball is trying to come to the surface, like the way the (laughs) thoughts might be trying to rise to the surface. If we're wrestling with a thought, even if we're trying to push it down, we're engaged with the thought. Our energy and our focus is still being directed in some capacity of the thought. So you can maybe be chatting with your friend while you're trying to push this beach ball under the water, but Hmm. it's taking up some of your mental resources. What if instead we let the thought come to the surface? You literally let yourself have the stickiest or the most anxiety-provoking thought you have, which is if I lose this game, my rating is going to go down 10 points. Cool. Terrifying, right? Yes. You're going to feel your heart rate go up. It, It doesn't feel good. The beauty of this is once you let the thought come to the surface, you can engage in something that we call diffusion, which is all of these different exercises that essentially let the thought float away. Once you stop wrestling with a beach ball, you're not pushing it under the surface anymore. It's come to the surface, but now it can just sort of float away. You can swim away and eventually you might have a lot of distance with that thought. And now you're better able to engage where you actually want your intention to go. Why am I so resistant to this? Because it sounds beautiful, but I'm just like, you know what it is? You know what it is, Julia? Yeah. I'm too proud of a person. I don't want to admit I'm having those thoughts. So I need I need yeah. I need more. Cause like I, I really, really want to deny in the moment that I'm having it. And it's only when I look back at the game and realize what happened that I realize what's happened. And that's kind of why I started where I started, which is we really do have to identify the thought. Mm-hmm. And it's funny that you say that because that's why diffusion is an exercise that's part of acceptance and commitment therapy. (laughs) There does have to be this moment where you sort of accept my anxiety around the change in my rating is impacting my state of arousal and my ability to focus on this game. But I think if if you are able to do that, and that might be a separate conversation, JJ, about how you sort of open yourself up to that reality. And maybe some of that could be helped with the normalization of the fact that Everyone experiences this mm. to some effect. But if we can sort of let ourselves recognize that this is having at least some impact, like I said, there's there's many exercises. They fall in the category of something called diffusion, which are all designed to get more distance with the thought and let yourself return to contact with the present moment. I'm realizing that I have a kind of interesting analogy here, which okay. is I've struggled a lot with like learning through being able to play just through like fatigue, not so much like a psychological fatigue, but just more of just like the physical exhaustion of playing all day. Totally. And a major thing that helped me get through that wasn't um, diet and exercise. I I just I saw all the dominoes, JJ, and I love it already, but keep going. It wasn't deciding that I'm going to crush and shifting into positive thinking mode. Yeah. And and I'm gonna train myself and I'm gonna improve my mental physical fitness so that I don't get tired. Yeah. It was realizing that my opponent in the last round has also been playing all day and is also tired because they've been under the same conditions I've been under. And I don't have to never be tired. I don't have to worry about the fact that I'm tired. I just have to assume that any sorts of fatigue I'm experiencing and how that's affecting my play, my opponent is experiencing that as well. And yeah. realizing that has really given me a sort of confidence. And I, today aside, I've had a pretty good showing in last round games. And so that's been super helpful for me. But then I also think what's funny here is how much easier it was for me to just say, of course, we all do that for something physical. 
like yeah. exhaustion versus something psychological, right? Like, of course we all experience that in some way, but there's a sense in which it's obvious that we all get tired in a way that it's not obvious what our inner minds look like, even though it's totally true. And that yeah. just like maps onto like so much about discussions of mental health where, you know, like the way people, like no one's going to tell you to like optimize your way through a broken bone, but <laughs> they'll be yeah. like, oh, you should actually take care of that. But then when it comes to just like fatigue, they're like, oh, have you tried stretching? And it's like, no, my bone is broken. <laughs> yeah, that might be especially true in this space, which is so heavily dominated by men. I mean, it's so predominantly male. Mm -hmm. where it's easier for people to talk about the physical effects mm. and say, oh, I get really worn out and tired and hungry after playing chess for eight hours. But it might be harder to say, I'm so passionate that I actually feel really anxious about my rating or I feel really depressed when my rating goes down. And so that might be part of why it's easier to normalize the physical stuff over the psychological stuff, at least mm -hmm. in part. Yeah. Yeah. I, th I, th I, th I think that's definitely true. There's just a way of asking that question where, like you were saying before, it's like, how do I not get tired? It's like, that's a terrible question. Yeah. And uh, can I, can we mm -hmm. pause on that? I'm just smiling so much. It makes me so happy. And <laughs> like, it's, I feel like a light bulb turned on for you, but for me as a therapist, it's like, yeah, duh, <laughs> where you kind of noticed once I was able to sort of accept that this process was happening, it felt scary. You have to like almost admit something that you either don't want to be true or that exactly. causes even more of an emotional reaction. But once I did that, I was actually able to respond in a much more productive or helpful way. And right. that is kind of like, that's my bread and butter. Really, <laughs> to me, that's such an obvious truth of acceptance is magical. It really, yeah. really is. And Marsha Linehan, who literally developed all of DBT, this incredible therapy that, I mean, truly saved so many lives that was developed to help specifically for people with high risk of suicidality, mm. which we used to think was simply a symptom of depression mm. and very difficult to treat. Mm. It's literally considered to be part of untreatable depression. So we kind of considered this very tricky thing that was very difficult to address. Marshall Linehan created DBT. And I remember her giving an interview where she said, my favorite part of DBT, the best part of this therapy is radical acceptance. And it changed my life. And I see mm. it changed my patient's life. Mm. And there is really something to that. Yeah. Acceptance is hard and terrifying and it is life-changing. And if you can almost develop this practice of constantly, continually <laughs> accepting reality, including your internal reality, you will see your life change in some beautiful, beautiful ways. And maybe to tie it all together, the reason like, they keep kind of trying to like dunk on the whole, like, how do I optimize? How do I not get tired thing is there's a sense in which like that can come out of acceptance, but sometimes there's a risk of that coming as a way of like fighting that acceptance, right? I totally agree. If you're literally yes. asking the question, oh, how do I not get tired during games? You're not accepting right. that you're just going to get tired. And then you can then actually start thinking about, well, what is within my control? What can I do to be less tired? Not like, can I go to the gym every morning and hit every second of it? But just like, you I know, totally agree oh, if you. I pack a snack, I'm less tired. It could be that simple if you just admit <laughs> yeah. it. You're, you're not trying to optimize it. Yeah, that moment where you're still kind of like, railing against the reality yeah. of human biology yeah yeah and there's a and so like and so i think there's even a sense in which like kind of globally i'm like at the beginning i'm like yeah so how do i not freak out about what's going to happen to my rating while i play chess and like what we're hearing is well you're going to but what can you do once that starts to happen yeah or more so because <laughs> there's certainly things that you can do in the long run to minimize that reaction mm. But yes, I think at the end of the day, you're totally right. It sort of is recognizing that I'm a human being who loves this game, who cares about how I'm doing. And so there's going to be some natural reaction when those types of thoughts creep in. And I do think about the rating. <laughs> yeah. But I think it sucks more when that thinking creeps in and you try to ignore it, mm. but you're feeling really agitated and heightened. And then you have a bad game like you did tonight. And and then it never gets better. <laughs> so that might be a worse. That might be a worse reality. And I think yeah. with the passion and the love is going to come. These things are going to come with it. And there's even a sense in which we can embrace that as part of like why we play. Yeah, beautifully said. So, I 
I think, JJ, that when you notice those thoughts creep in, if they do, when they do, can you take that moment to pause, give them space, recognize that not only the cognitive thought that you're having, but also the emotional reaction? Did it change your mood state? Is there a physical reaction? That part can be hard for people to tap into. Do you feel a tightness in your chest? Do you feel a pit in your stomach, a lump in your throat? I I said this on a previous episode, but I'll say it again because I think it bears repeating. It's a really cool phenomenon, which is when we have those unpleasant visceral bodily experiences, we tend to try to not think about them because they're not pleasant. What's really interesting is that when we actually bring our attention and our focus and our awareness to that part of our body and let ourselves feel the feeling, even try to describe the feeling. Where is it? What is that sensation like? The feeling tends to dissipate. It dissolves. It goes away. Um, That is not necessarily intuitive to most people. And that's why it's something that we practice. That's something that you can do in therapy is literally practice that exact process. So in that moment, JJ, could you recognize everything that's happening? Yeah, I don't see why not. Let's let's follow up in a couple of weeks about that. You know, I feel like last time you did some of the stuff we talked about and then you said it worked. So Oh yeah, you're gonna see by the time this is released, yesterday's Substack post about that. Oh, amazing. Yeah, that was on the chess pit interview, but it was really cool to hear that, that those things had a noticeable impact. Absolutely. Well, as always, thanks for sticking with us. And just to recap, the only thing that matters about you is your rating. You are more than your rating. You are also all of your blunders. (laughs) Thank you, everyone, for listening. And I would like to see the games that make you happy. All right. Peace. As always, thank you for letting us take you into this deep, dark forest. Where two plus two equals five, and the path leading out is only wide enough for listeners like you. Intro and outro music provided by JPEG Mafia. We would be truly touched if you subscribe and leave us a glowing review. And tell all of your friends. Yeah, all of them. And every week, we'll be gifting one lucky subscriber who leaves a five-star review a lifetime premium diamond membership to leechess.org. Unlocking all of their features. Even that? Especially that. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at ChessFeelsPod. Oh, and if you didn't like what you heard, do not hesitate to message any feedback. No matter how critical or scathing. Directly to Mr. Dodgy, our social media manager, even though he doesn't know it, (laughs) at ChessProblem. Yeah. Yeah.